chapter 5, and I'll read beginning in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter, he said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. 
And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent them in a way and they departed. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, all orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Many people have favorite stories that they could just read over and over. Maybe you have a movie that you've watched so many times you can actually say every single line before they say it, but you want to watch it again. For us old people, you may have had a VHS or a cassette tape that you burned out because you watched it so many times. This morning, we come to one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament, the healing of Naaman. Yet tragically, in Bible reading, we often don't treat it as we do with our movies or our stories. Often people go, oh, I know this one. I've heard this story before. They know the basic plots and twists of the story, and so they wonder why even listen to this again. Yet that is to misunderstand the reason God gave us these stories. God gave us us these stories not just to know all the facts about them, but so that we might be shaped and influenced by them. To see God working in the lives of others and know that same God still speaks and works in the lives of his people today. For example, if you read the story of Daniel in the lion's den and knew all of it, but didn't draw from it courage and strength to be faithful to God no matter the cost, then you don't really know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. They say all this because no hiding anything here. I love this story. I really enjoyed it. And so as I was going, I realized I have so much I want to say it's going to take two weeks. So we're just going to look at some things from the story this week, and then we'll look at more of it next week. Today, though, we're going to see from this passage three crucial contrasts. We see in this story providence versus self-determination, loving others versus using others, and exclusive grace versus inclusive grace. If you have a bulletin, that outline should be on the back of it. But first, let me just briefly recap the story, and then we'll look at these three things we learned from it. You know, the story, if you've been following with us, has been going through First and Second Kings, and we now with the prophet Elisha, and he's been doing it many things in Israel, but now we read of this Syrian general. Now, Syria lay to the north of Israel, sometimes it's also called Aram. King David had conquered them, but then during the reign of Solomon, they broke away and became a thorn in his side. Now, at various times, Israel and Syria will attack and their adversaries, though it doesn't seem currently, at war. And we hear this man Naaman. He's well loved by his king because of his military prowess. And yet he has one major drawback. Leprosy. And you can go read Leviticus 13. It'll use the term leprosy to describe many different skin conditions. Seems like Naaman has one of the really bad ones, but not the worst. Because if you had the worst ones, you weren't allowed to be in contact with other people. But it was a serious condition, one in which he is desperately seeking for healing. We're then told 
that along with Naaman, there's this young girl who was taken in a Syrian raid and is now serving for Naaman's wife. Naaman's wife is told by this young girl, oh, if only my master Naaman would go, the prophet of Samaria would heal him. Well, Naaman, of course, wants to be healed. So he goes to his king. The king then sends money and a letter. But the king of Israel, he's not excited of what could happen because of this. He's frustrated. He's angry. He tears his clothes thinking, I'm not God. I can't heal this man. He's just trying to stir up conflict because when I can't heal him, then he's going to come and say, well, you wouldn't heal my general. Yet Elisha then calls Naaman to him. And there Naaman comes. But it's interesting. Elisha doesn't come out to this great man. Rather, he just sends a messenger who tells him, go wash in the Jordan seven times. Now to Naaman, in his pride, and we'll look at that more next week, this is an insult. One, Elisha didn't even come stand before me. And two, wash in this dirty Jordan River. Our rivers are better. This is dumb. And yet his servants just say, isn't this wise? Why not at least go try it? And he does. And he's healed. And what does he then do? He comes back and he praises God. He says, there's no God like the God of Israel. There's no other God in the world except the God of Israel. And yet Elisha will not take any gifts from him. Gehazi, his servant, though, thinks Elisha is letting a great opportunity escape. So he goes running after Naaman and makes up a story in which some people have come and he gets money and clothing. Yet when Gehazi returns to Elisha, Elisha questions him, challenges him, rebukes him, and then tells of God's curse on Gehazi. The very leprosy that Naaman had will now be on his family forever. And as I said, this story really lends rich reflection. And I think the first application we can draw from this is seeing the difference between providence and self-determination. God's providence is a big word to talk about the way God and His wisdom governs cares for and directs everything in the universe you know in this story we see god's providence both in the telescopic and the microscopic aspects of life the telescopic is seen in verse one look down again at chapter five verse one it says for the king of syria loved naaman because by him the lord had given victory to syria who had given naaman The foreign enemy of Israel victory? Yahweh, the God of Israel. Though they're from Syria, another country, even one that hates them, it's the Lord who gave him his victories. The author is highlighting that God rules over every nation. He doesn't just rule over Israel or one little geographical area. He's the ruler of every single part of this world. He gives every general victory and every general defeats. This is the telescope view of Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. Everything is under God's providence. But it's not, though, God just oversees these big picture things. He also sees the minutia. That is the microscopic view look at verse 7 in chapter 5 verse 7 the king says am i god to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy the king of israel knew that god is sovereign 
even over the cells of our body, whether they're healthy or leprous. Thus, it is God who can change the skin cells, either removing Naaman's leprosy or giving Gehazi leprosy. And even the way Elisha leads Naaman to be healed, he shows this because Elisha doesn't go out to meet Naaman. And I think one of the reasons why is he doesn't want Naaman in any way to think that he's the one who did healing. He distanced himself. And even where does he go wash? In the Jordan River, which was miles away from where Elisha was. So in no way can Naaman think, well, the prophet did this. And Naaman gets the point because when he comes back, he doesn't say, oh, there's a prophet in Israel. No, instead he says, the God of Israel is the God of the universe. All of this is showing us the microscopic view of God's providence that Matthew 10, 29 and 30 say. Are there not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. How many hair follicles does your head still produce? I don't know. Fewer, some say. But God controls every one of them. God's providence shines through every aspect of this story. It's like a room at noon that has the curtains drawn and the lights out, but you can still see because the sun's rays are so powerful, it illumines the room. And one amazing example of God's providence, consider whom God allowed to be taken captive. If you've been following along with us in our study of First and Second Kings, you'll know that right now is a low point of Israel's faithfulness to God. There are not many who are actively trusting God. And yet God allows a young girl to be taken captive who trusts him and who knows that he alone can bring healing and salvation. Not only that, but as we'll see, she's one who loves so well that she will care for her captor and tell him, her enslaver, how he can be healed. This little girl shows great trust in God's providence. For rather than allowing her captivity to make her bitter, she uses it to be a blessing. She realizes that, yes, God controls everything, but that doesn't mean that God causes all things to immediately get better or improve in the ways that we think they should. This is God's providence over people and plans that we read of in James four thirteen through 15 Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, I'm sure listening to this, for many of this is old hat. Yes, God's providence is over everything. Yes, we know this. We've heard this many times. Come on, pastor, get on to stuff we don't know. And yet, do we really know it? Do we hear the half-truths from our culture that are stated as full truths? One half-truth that gets preached to us over and over in our culture is that of self-determination. Now, people don't use fancy words like that, but you may hear it this way. You can be whatever you want to be. Believe in yourself, and you can do anything. Speak positive words in your life, and they will come true. You can even find well-known pastors who preach whole sermons and series on such themes. Well, the half-truth 
is that goals, perseverance, confidence can lead you to do incredible things. I was a masochist, oh, sorry, math teacher for six years. And students who lacked confidence in their math would often not do very well. They would, "Ah, I don't know if this is right. And then they would second guess themselves and mess up. Some of you may remember Josh Bradley. He was here for pilot training a couple years ago. And we were talking once and he said, at the Air Force Academy, when they teach us to parachute, one of the most important things is how you land. And one thing you have to do is to learn what do you do if you're going to land near something that will cause harm. And he said a common problem is what they call target fixation. You're gliding down and you see something you're not supposed to hit. But rather than looking to where you want to hit, your eyes get locked on it and you inadvertently hit the very thing you want to avoid. Target fixation. And this happens all the time. A few years ago, my family was watching a show called The Great British Baking Show. And in one episode, from the beginning, a man said, Someone always makes a big mistake in their first show, and I don't want to be that guy. Well, you can guess what happened. He was so focused on not making a mistake that he substituted the salt for the sugar. It was so horrible, one of the hosts just said, No, don't even eat that. That's got salt in it, not sugar. Thus... There is a grain of truth in our rich, mobile Western society that you can often be whatever you want to be. That if you believe in yourself and have a positive attitude, things will often go better. That is true. But it is often, and it is often true, that if, look, if you sit there and focus on all the negative things, that will probably happen. And focusing on the positive it is generally going to help. Yet, that's a grain of truth that tragically we now preach as the whole truth. Let's think of this story. Did any amount of self-determination or positivity lead Naaman's leprosy to go away? Perhaps the little girl who was taken captive, maybe she had dreams of what she'd be when she grew up. Are any of those now going to come true? The only person in the story who's bound and determined to get something to happen is Gehazi, and he's the only one who ends up losing everything. No amount of self-determination, positive thinking, or believing in oneself caused anything good to happen in this story. God's providence did. Now, the fact that you can't be or do anything you want, that's not only true back then, it's true today. I have recently started reading a book by G.K. Chesterton, and he notes, who are the people who most fully believe in themselves? They're the people in the insane asylums. There the people go, I'm Jesus Christ. I'm Napoleon. And they really believe it. They are 100% sure that they are Napoleon incarnate. Is that helping them? Not at all. And you might go, okay, yeah, so some crazy people believe in themselves. But sometimes when we get these theories, we stop living in reality. Don't y'all know people who believe in themselves and no one else does? I mean, haven't we all been to karaoke night? They believe in themselves. And everyone else is saying, get them down. They think they're the greatest. And we hope the song's almost over. You know, as Americans, we're going to have the Olympics. Well, everyone's going to have the Olympics. And we love the stories. They're going to show stories of someone who was in a poor town. And they're from a broken family. And they fought. And they struggled. And they win gold. But just think about it. There have been other children doing the exact same thing who didn't even make it to the Olympic trials for the U.S., And they're doing those things in countries around the globe. 
We just focus on these narrow stories. Oh, you can be whatever you want. And yes, we should rejoice in those stories. They're wonderful when people work hard. But we ought to say, come now you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, I'll do this or become that. Do you not know what your life is? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And all of this focusing on God's sovereignty, his providence, is not to negate our responsibility. If Naaman had then continued and not going to the Jordan, he wouldn't have been healed. He had actions he needed to do. God healed Naaman by his providence, not Naaman's determination. But Naaman still needed to go. The point of all of this is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And knowing God's providence can really give you confidence in all of life. Thus, in the telescopic events of life, we can have confidence whether we like the president in office or not. Whether we like the parties in control or not, God rules every one of them. In the microscopic events of life, we can have confidence that whether you have a little coronavirus or not, cancer cells or not, brain aneurysms or not, God controls every little cell in your body. In regards to the people and plans of life, we can have confidence that God holds them in His hands. Thus, whether they or we go through blessings or trials, God is in control. And knowing that God is in control allows us, and it frees us to love others, even our enemies. Isn't this one of the most amazing parts of the story this captured girl was concerned for her captor. And thus we see the next thing, the second point, the contrast between loving others and using others. You know, we don't have to go into wild speculation to suggest that this girl had some traumatic events in her life. Surely when the Syrian raiders came, people were shouting, yelling, fighting, and running in terror. She probably knew people who lay murdered on the ground and others who were screaming in agony as they had been wounded. You know, the abrupt change from normal life to all of a sudden in a new land with people speaking a different language and strange customs, telling her to act and to do it immediately, surely brought depression. You know, surely she had weeks, if not months and years of nightmares. She no longer had birthday celebrations. No more family get-togethers. No more playing with siblings. Maybe for some that would be an improvement. But the point is, she was not in a good situation. She was now surrounded by people who didn't tuck her in her night, wake her up in the morning. She was surrounded by people who robbed her of what was her life. And all of this could have festered and led to an intense hatred and loathing of the Syrians. It could lead her to rejoice at their sufferings and sorrow at their rejoicings. You know, don't we get bitter and vengeful over much less? You know, she believed in the Lord. And she knew God spoke and worked through the prophet Elisha. Thus rather seeking vengeance or becoming bitter, this girl confidently states that if her master would only go to Elisha, he would be healed. She lives out what Jesus will later state. In Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies 
and pray for those who persecute you. You know how easy it would have been for her to rationalize, to just be passive and quiet. Ah, Naaman wouldn't even go to Israel. He doesn't believe in Yahweh. These other slaves in these other homes, they think I'm crazy to still believe in Yahweh. Here we are in Syria. I just won't say anything. How easy it would be for her to rejoice. Ah, he's now suffering. He made me come here. I'm glad God's punishing him for what he did. Yet she didn't seek vengeance, but rather sought to love Naaman by telling of the way of deliverance. Her act of loving of her persecutor, her enemy, stands in stark contrast to Gehazi. Verse 20 shows him in disgust that Elisha has spared this Naaman, the Syrian. Naaman's rich, and Gehazi, all he can think about is how he can connive to get a blessing from Naaman. He'll even lie to Naaman so he can get some money and clothes. There's also the contrast between Elisha and Gehazi. Elisha doesn't care about Naaman's presence or position. Though Naaman rolled up with horses and an entourage of chariots, Elisha is not moved. Elisha's main concern is to honor the Lord and for Naaman to be healed. Thus he won't let anything, even a curiosity at Naaman's wealth, distract him. Gehazi, though, only sees a person who he can get from, not serve. If we're honest, loving people does not come naturally to us. Our initial response to being slighted is to slight them back. To move on, I'm done with this relationship. To give them the cold shoulder. We'd rather get revenge than turn the other cheek. We in our country have become so focused on self-care that we even now glorify and encourage leaving relationships that we don't find beneficial. Now, of course, there is time to leave real abuse. I'm not saying you should stay in every relationship. Yet, it seems like we've been quicker to ask, is this relationship helping me? Than to ask, how can I love this person? In contrast to all of that, we read in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As sinful rebels, God did not say, this relationship's too toxic. It's going to kill me to save these people. No, in love, Jesus came to save us, even while enemies. He then calls us, and this young girl exemplifies for us, loving our enemies too. We're reminded by this girl that one of the basic ways we can love people, one of the most basic ways, is to tell them of the deliverance there is in Christ Did you notice the great strategy this girl had? Did you notice her stunning, apologetic argument she had? Did you see her masterful working through the spiritual laws? No, none of that was there. I'm not demeaning any of that. There's a time and place for all those things. But her strategy is very simple. It's found in verse 3. Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Her strategy, if we could call it that, loving concern for her enemy and telling them where help could be found. When the topic of evangelism comes up, our guiltometer normally pops off the top. Oh, haven't, haven't witnessed recently. 
And I think the problem is that many of us have painted an unrealistic view of evangelism. If we're not knocking on doors or passing out tracts, somehow we're failing in this regard. But I think that for most of us, God calls us just to love the people He has put in our life. And that means whether they're believers or unbelievers, when they have issues in their life, we point them to the true help, Christ. You know, often we're not good even with believers in sharing of Christ. It's not just with unbelievers. The thing is, if we really get to know people, we'll find out their burdens. We'll find out their problems and then we'll quickly realize, I don't have the resources to fix your problems. But we know the one who does. And isn't that the freeing aspect of this girl? She didn't have all the answers. She wasn't some great masterful evangelist. She was there and she was faithful. And she just trusted God to bring the results. And that's all God calls you to do. Wherever you are, love the people around you. And as you seek to love them, you will find out their burdens and sufferings. And that's when we can naturally speak of the hope and the deliverance that's found in Christ. And yet being eager and willing to share with others only comes when we see God's desire for inclusive grace. And we see this, our last point, exclusive grace versus inclusive grace. What we need to realize is from the beginning of Israel's history, God planned that he would bless the world through Israel. In Genesis 12, when God first called Abraham, he said, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your nation great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. After God had delivered Israel out of Egypt, he says to them in Exodus 19.6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Why was Israel, not just the Levites, a kingdom of priests? Because they were to lead the world to God. God's grace has always been inclusive in the sense that he wants people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Thus, even in the Old Testament, we see Jethro, Rahab, Ruth, the Queen of Sheba, even King Nebuchadnezzar, all of them foreigners, give praise to God, because Israel is to lead people to God. And yet this stands in contrast to the exclusive view of God's grace that seems often to infect God's people. It's seen in Moses' siblings speaking against Moses in Numbers 12 because Moses married a Cushite, a non-Jew. Now yes, at times the Old Testament does warn of marrying foreigners, but that's because they have foreign gods, not because they were foreigners in and of themselves. Ruth was a foreigner, a Moabite, and yet when she trusted in Yahweh, she was joyfully welcomed and even became the ancestor to King David and Jesus. The exclusive view of God's grace is also seen in Jonah's refusal to go to Nineveh and then his anger once he goes and they repent. It says in Jonah 4, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, that is, that God relented in punishing Nineveh, and he was angry. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting 
from disaster. Why is Jonah so upset? Because he doesn't want Nineveh forgiven. He wants them punished. Grace is for us, not for them. Let them have your punishment, God. We want grace just for us. Yet here, we're seeing God, again, has inclusive grace. It's rather amazing when you back up. We are here in the middle of First and Second Kings, and who does God heal? Not just a foreigner, a foreigner who has come and attacked Israel. Someone who is their enemy. Why? Because God has a love not only for Israel, but rather God wants to use Israel and His people today to be a catalyst, to be agents, to be priests, bringing the world to Him. So rather than an exclusive view of grace, we should want to include people by telling them of Christ and then them trusting Him and coming to saving faith. Yet Israel, and often we, don't get this. You know, when Jesus came, how did the Jews treat the Samaritans and Gentiles? They excluded them. They wanted nothing to do with them. After Christ, Peter had to be shown a vision and then see God miraculously work in Gentiles before he'd be willing to fully accept them. There had to be a whole council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 to decide whether Gentiles could really be part of God's people if they didn't do all the Mosaic laws and Jewish cultural customs. Now the disciples should have known better. They should have known that Jesus reached out to those outside of Israel. And yet, we often don't like around us those who are different from us. And the idea that our enemies would receive God's grace doesn't rub us the right way. We saw that in the beginning of Jesus' ministry earlier in the service. We read from Luke 4, and in there, part of it says, And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the lands. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the times of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And how do they respond? Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down from the cliff. And when Jesus first came on this day, they're excited. Oh, Jesus, he's a local hero. He's known in the region. This is wonderful. We love you, Jesus. Until he won't do signs when they say, and then he also says, my grace is also for foreigners. Once they hear this, anger, rage, you only deserve to be killed. They wanted to keep God's grace to themselves while God planned for his people to be agents to spread that grace to others. So will we go into all the world to make disciples? Or will we isolate ourselves to stay away from the wicked world? You know, we too can be slow to reach out to those of differing class, differing political viewpoints, Different hygiene. Now, of course, we never say that. We say, oh, yes, we want them to come to Christ. We just leave off that they should also adopt our eating habits, our ideals of cleanliness, and all of our viewpoints. Now, every 
situation is unique. So what I say next is not intended to be a blanket judgment. It's a kind of 10,000 foot view. But I think as you can look in the history of our country for the last 50 years, you can see communities where there's a church. And then the community around the church begins to change. The ethnicity begins to look different. Maybe people are already citizens in the U.S. or maybe immigrants from another country. And what do the people say? Oh, things are beginning to look different around here. What are we going to do? We're not sure that things are the way they should. And often the church slowly shrinks and then moves to another part of town. Rather than saying, how can we reach these people? God has brought these people to us. We don't have to go to the world. They're coming to us. What a joy. Now, none of that's meant to be said that we shouldn't, that we shouldn't maybe consider immigration policies or things like that. But if they're here, God wants us to love them, to reach out to them, not go, why are they here? You know, some Christians have even been more radical than that in their thinking. You may know that in April 1942, that after almost four months of being bombed at Pearl Harbor, Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle led a raid of 16 B-25 bombers to drop bombs over Japan. After they bombed, they didn't have to land in China, and many of them were killed in the landing or caught. Some were captured, and four were not executed, though they received horrific treatment. At one point, they were allowed some books, and though none of them were Christians in practice, these American soldiers all voraciously read the Bible when it was their turn to have it. One of those men, Jacob DeShazer, tells of when his three weeks to have the Bible came. He writes, I eagerly began to read its pages. Chapter after chapter gripped my heart. On June 8, 1944, the words of Romans 10.9 stood out boldly before my eyes. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. In that very moment, he writes, God gave me grace to confess my sins to him and he forgave me and saved me for Jesus' sake. Suddenly, I discovered that God had given me new spiritual eyes. And then when I looked at the Japanese officers and guards who had starved and beaten me and my companions so cruelly, I found my bitter hatred for them changing to loving pity. While those who crucified Jesus had beaten him and spit upon him, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And now from the depths of my heart, I too prayed for God to forgive my tortures. Shazer would live that radical love out during the rest of his imprisonment. Then, once the war ended, DeShazer came back to the U.S. with one mission, to study and prepare so that he might return to Japan as a missionary. Six years and eight months later, he sailed back with his new wife to tell the people of Japan of God's love in Christ. So, whether we're captured servant girls in Syria prisoners of war in Japan, or citizens with people different from us in the U.S. We are called to love those people. To have a God's kingdom mentality in which we seek to model our Savior that loved us even while we are still sinners and enemies. May God give us grace to live that out. Let's pray. Oh Lord, these words are not anything that a man could come up with. 
to love enemies is not what comes natural. Revenge, justice, hatred, that's what springs up. And so we thank you for your son who came and showed us a radically different way. A way of love that loves even enemies and sinners. So Lord, we thank you that in your goodness you have opened our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. And may we go out living his life to those around us. Sharing the message that can only bring life, that of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.